Welcome back. This is Sam. And this is Corrine, and we are two OncDocs. In this week's episode, we'll be focusing on hemolytic anemia, and we'll primarily focus on acquired forms of hemolytic anemia, which include warm autoimmune hemolytic anemia, which I'll refer to as AHA, cold agglutinin disease, paroxysmal cold hemoglobinuria, and we'll briefly cover drug-induced as well as paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria. Awesome. So I think this is a really high yield topic, not only for test day and ITEs, but really our consult service. This is one of the bread and butter things that we get called and consulted about as hematologists. So I think this is a super high yield episode, not only for board studying, but just for life in general. And so to start us off, what is hemolytic anemia and how does it present? In hemolytic anemia, red blood cells are unable to maintain their intact structure and hemolysis occurs leading to a shorter red blood cell lifespan. And remember that the normal lifespan of a red blood cell is about 120 days or four months. And this can happen because of changes to the enzymes, membranes, or cytoskeleton of the red blood cell. And in terms of presentation for hemolytic anemia, the physical exam may reveal scleral icterus, jaundice, lymphadenopathy, enlarged spleen, dark urine, And the CBC will, of course, show a low hemoglobin as well as other markers, which indicate hemolysis, which I'll cover in a minute. Great. Yeah, I think looking at taking a good physical exam and then looking at the CBC is really going to prompt further workup for hemolytic anemia. And obviously, we love our blood smears. So I know you'll talk about those, too. So what are our types of hemolytic anemia that we need to be aware of? There are many etiologies of hemolytic anemia, but today I will primarily cover acquired entities, which are Coombs positive or immune, which include AHA, cold agglutinin disease, and paroxysmal cold hemoglobinuria. The other causes include TMAs or MAHA, which we covered previously, and there are many hereditary causes, including red blood cell membrane defects, such as hereditary spherocytosis or elliptocytosis red blood cell metabolic defects, and hemoglobin defects such as thalassemia. And those will primarily be Coombs negative. And then don't forget about delayed hemolytic anemia from transfusions, which we also mentioned in our transfusion medicine episode. And this typically happens four weeks after a transfusion. Definitely. So I think, again, realizing that you can have that delayed hemolytic anemia from a transfusion always needs to be on our differential diagnosis because like you said, it can be four weeks or really, you know, a month later. So we need to think back, has this person had any blood in the past month and could that actually be the cause of what's happening? So up next, let's talk about our key laboratory features when we're working up possible hemolytic anemia and what will they show? The CBC will, of course, show a decreased hemoglobin. The reticulocyte count will be increased. Generally, it's preferred to calculate the absolute reticulocyte count because it is unaffected by the hemoglobin concentration. But if that's not available, then you calculate the reticulocyte percentage, and there are calculators to help you calculate this. The LDH will be increased. The bilirubin that's indirect will be elevated, but it's not always elevated if there is just mild hemolysis. The haptoglobin, very importantly, will be low because free hemoglobin binds to haptoglobin. The urinalysis can show hemosiderin. And then the peripheral blood smear gives key information as as to the etiology of the hemolytic anemia. You can see schistocytes, agglutination, stomatocytes, target cells, ferrocytes, depending on the cause. And very importantly, we obtain a DAT or Coombs test. 
Great. You guys should doctor Google what blood smears of hemolysis looks like um, so that if they show you the picture of a schistocyte or they show you the picture of a target cell, you already are prompting your thought process of the differential diagnosis of hemolytic anemias and what, what to do next and what the diagnosis and treatment is. So you mentioned DAT. What is DAT or a Coombs test? DAT is the direct antiglobulin test, interchangeably called as Coombs, and it helps distinguish between hemolysis that's from an immune mechanism versus a non-immune mechanism. So it determines whether the patient's red blood cells are coated with IgG, complement, or both, and the assay is performed by taking washed patient red blood cells and incubating them with anti-human IgG and anti-human C3D antibodies. If you have AHA, these anti-human antibodies form bridges between red cells by binding the human antibodies on the patient's red blood cells. These bridges are known as agglutination, and agglutination is typically graded as negative to 4+. plus. One note is that a positive test does not always mean hemolysis, and another note is that the DAT can be falsely positive after the administration of various immunoglobulin-containing therapies, which include IVIG, RHD immunoglobulin, antithymocyte globulin, daratumumab, as well as certain diseases where you have elevated serum gamma globulins or paraproteins. I'm glad that you mentioned the possible false positives because we did on test day have that question and it was prompting daratumumab causing that false positive Coombs test. So that is one that you guys should definitely know. It's a little pearl for you guys to walk into hemites as well as your boards. So now let's discuss warm autoimmune hemolytic anemia or AHA. So in AHA, you have a panagglutinin IgG antibody that causes hemolysis, and it binds at a temperature of around 37 Celsius. The smear will show spherocytes with reticulocytosis. And remember that reticulocytes on a smear appear bluer and larger than normal red blood cells without a nucleus. The etiology can be primary or idiopathic. And then there are multiple secondary causes of AHA, including lymphoproliferative diseases like CLL, lymphomas, myeloma, Waldenstrand's, Infections like HIV, EBV, and hep C, autoimmune diseases like lupus, rheumatoid, scleroderma, ulcerative colitis, and there are unusual causes like Babesia, brown recluse spider bites, and organ transplant. And know that up to 10% of AHAs are cum negative, and you can order something called a super cums. But for today's discussion, I'm mostly focusing on the cums positive hemolytic anemias. Okay, I'm actually laughing over here because we had the brown recluse spider bite on our boards. Do you remember that, Kareen? I do, I do. (laughs) And I kept thinking there is no way this is going to be tested, but it was. So I'm glad that you listed all possible causes, including some of those unusual ones, which I have not seen in person, but I did see on test day. So what is our treatment for warm autoimmune hemolytic anemia? So remember steroids. So you're going to give prednisone one to two milligrams per kilogram per day with a very slow taper. Always remember your high dose steroid precautions, such as hyperglycemia, PGP prophylaxis, peptic ulcer prophylaxis, and calcium and vitamin D. Rituximab is now often used in conjunction in the first line setting with steroids. And this is given weekly for four weeks. And then you can consider IVIG, which has a transient infect and is generally given for patients that are transfusion dependent after two weeks of prednisone and rituximab. And then for those with persistent disease, you can consider immunosuppressive agents, including mycophenolates, serolimus, azathioprine, 
cyclophosphamide, cyclosporine A, and danazole. And then splenectomy is considered if there is no response to steroids and rituximab, although there are significant risks and burdens to having a splenectomy, as well as an increased thrombosis risk. So that needs to be discussed at length. And then if a patient needs transfusion, you have to give the most compatible blood. Do not withhold blood out of concern for incompatibility. Identify the patient's ABO type and transfuse. And for individuals who are who are at risk of previous sensitization to RBC alloantigens due to prior transfusions or pregnancy, blood can be infused slowly over three to four hours with close monitoring, and you use a slower rate. And then one extra note is that those with persistent hemolysis should get folic acid as well. Definitely. Um, that's why we use, I know we had a sickle cell episode and this is one of the reasons we keep these patients on folic acid because if there's persistent or chronic hemolysis, they need to be supplemented. So related to warm autoimmune hemolytical, hemolytic anemia, aha, what is Evans syndrome? Evans syndrome is the combination of AHA with ITP, and you can sometimes also have autoimmune neutropenia. It's more difficult to treat, and they often have a chronic clinical course, and a substantial portion of patients will also have autoimmune lymphoproliferative disorder and should be screened for this. Great. Can you next go over cold agglutinin disease? Because these are commonly tested or paired against each other. Yes. In cold agglutinin disease, you have cold reactive IgM autoantibodies that bind to the carbohydrate antigen little I or big I on red blood cells anywhere from 4 to 34 degrees Celsius, and it strongly activates activates complement. Titers over 1 to 64 are clinically significant, and the smear can show agglutination. It can be primary or secondary, and there are some key secondary causes to memorize, which are EBV or mononucleosis, as well as mycoplasma pneumonia. Also autoimmune diseases, as well as lymphoma can be secondary causes. And an SPEP can show a monoclonal band in IgM in more than 90% of cases. And you can also see clonal B lymphocytes on the flow cytometry, but this does not necessarily mean that they also have lymphoma. Good. And so what is our treatment for a cold agglutinin disease? Avoid cold temperatures and warm blood if transfusions are needed. Treat the underlying cause if it's secondary. And remember that steroids and splenectomy are not effective. So for patients with symptomatic anemia, considerable fatigue, or cold-induced ischemia symptoms interfering with daily living, we give rituximab alone or in combination with bendamustine or bortezomib. And then there was a new treatment approved in 2022 by the FDA called Timlimab, which is an anti-C1 monoclonal antibody, although the exact indications are still being determined. So hopefully they won't test you on this. Yeah, but it makes sense because this is complement mediated. So targeting the complement cascade makes sense in this treatment. And so up next, what is paroxysmal cold hemoglobinuria? This is a rare form of autoimmune hemolytic anemia where you have an autoantibody type IgG, which is polyclonal And it most often happens after a viral infection and most often in children. So generally, you'll have these antibodies being produced 7 to 10 days after a febrile illness and then will present with symptoms of hemolysis. This mirror will show spherocytes as well as erythrophagocytosis, which is quite specific for this condition. The DIT will be positive for C3D. 
And then you have something called the Donald Landsteiner test where the IgG binds to red blood cells in the cold, but can cause severe intravascular hemolysis at 37 degrees Celsius. So at four degrees Celsius, the DAT is positive for IgG and C3. And then at 37 degrees Celsius, it's negative for IgG, but positive for C3. So again, it's positive for C3 always, but then at higher temperatures, it's negative for IgG. And then this is in contrast to cold agglutinin disease, where you're always negative for IgG. So remember that key difference to differentiate the two. And in terms of this condition, paroxysmal cold hemoglobinuria, it's self-limited and there is a questionable use of steroids. Great. So note that cryoglobulins don't cause hemolysis. So don't confuse those. Yes. These are cold reacting antibodies that can cause palpable purpura as well as vasculitis, but not to be confused with causes of hemolysis. Awesome. So as we're going along all the possible causes of autoimmune hemolytic anemia, can you briefly touch base on some drugs that can induce this? And what does that look like for us? Yes. For drug-induced AHA, you can have a negative DAT and common causes include antibiotics, NSAIDs, antineoplastic drugs like fludarabine. They can also tell you just that the patient went to the OR and not necessarily mention that they got an antibiotic in the vignette, but just think of patients getting perioperative antibiotics such as cephalosporins, which can commonly cause this. You have to stop the offending agent, and generally this resolves within one to two weeks after seizing the drug. But if they are symptomatic, you can try steroids and IVIG. Great. And so now that we are still on a roll, let's talk about our last condition. So will you tell us a little bit about PNH? Yes. I wanted to mention this again because it can present similarly to some of these immune hemolytic anemias. But remember that in PNH, the DAT is negative. We have covered this previously in our plastic anemia episode because up to 50% of the plastic anemias will have PNH clones. Most are subclinical. So again, the DAT here will be negative, but flow cytometry shows absence of GIP anchored self-surface proteins, CD55 and CD59, which lead to complement activation and intravascular hemolysis, as well as increases the risk of thrombosis. And those with a large percentage of PNH clones are at greatest risk of thrombosis. You diagnose this by flow cytometry, as well as a test called FLARE, which is fluorescent labeled aerolysin. We don't really use the ham and sucrose test, which you might remember from USMLE days. And then in terms of treatment, if they're symptomatic, including if they have a thrombotic event or have large clones, so more than 30%, you can treat with complement C5 or C3 inhibition with ecolizumab. Remember that this is a monoclonal antibody against C5. And then in refractory cases, you can consider stem cell transplantation. And remember to always give anticoagulation if there is a thrombus. Great. And so I think we've talked a little bit about ecolizumab and how it targets on that complement cascade, but can you briefly go over a few of the key toxicities with ecolizumab? Yes. I wanted to bring this up because I think it is heavily tested. So 50% of patients get a headache after ecolizumab, which improves after the first one to two doses. Other common side effects include back pain, nausea, nasopharyngitis, You can have Neisseria sepsis, which is why you need to ensure vaccination and prophylaxis. And patients need weekly labs initially because some patients can rarely have breakthrough of intravascular hemolysis 
where you need to change the dosing or switch the therapy to a different monoclonal antibody. And there is one new antibody called ravelizumab, which is a new C5 monoclonal antibody, which has a longer half-life and it has a lower cost than ecolizumab. Definitely. And so we're making progress with new treatments, it sounds like. Is there any other recent approvals in PNH that we need to be aware of? Maybe not for this year's test day, but in the next coming years. Yes, there was another FDA approval in PNH recently, which was Pegsitacoplan. I don't know if this will be reflected on the boards, but just know that this is another monoclonal antibody that binds to C3 and it can inhibit both intra and extravascular hemolysis. Awesome. And so lastly, are there any other syndromes that can be confused for immune-mediated hemolytic anemias? What are they? Yes. Hereditary spherocytosis, because you can also have spherocytes on the smear, which can be seen in warm autoimmune hemolytic anemia. But in this case, patients will have lifelong anemia, a positive family history, and then the laboratory testing reveals a negative DAT and a positive assay for EMA, which is eosin 5 malamide binding to red blood cells. Great. So Karine, thank you so much for tackling such a big topic, but breaking it down to bite-sized tidbits for this episode. And so what are our key takeaways for hemolytic anemias? So although there's many etiologies of hemolytic anemia, we primarily focus here on immune cumus positive anemias, which include AHA or warm autoimmune hemolytic anemia, where you have an IgG autoantibody and the DAT is positive at 37 degrees Celsius for IgG. Remember, treatment first line is steroids with rituximab. Generally try to avoid splenectomy if possible. And for those that are refractory, give immunosuppressive agents. You have cold agglutinin disease, which is an IgM autoantibody with a DAT positive at four degrees Celsius, as well as 37 degrees Celsius. 4C3, but is always negative for IgG. You have to avoid the cold, and if they're asymptomatic, no need to treat. But if if they're symptomatic, always remember rituximab, either alone or in combination with bortezomib or bendamustine. And not to be confused with paroxysmal cold hemoglobinuria, where you have a polyclonal IgG autoantibody, and then at 4 degrees Celsius, the DAT is positive for IgG and C3, but negative for IgG at 37 degrees Celsius, but still positive for C3. This often happens after a viral illness and is self-limited, and you'll have that positive Donald Lansiner test. And then also no other key diseases that can be confused for these autoimmune hemolytic anemias, which is PNH, where you have a flow cytometry that shows an absence of GPI anchored proteins, CD55 and CD59, but the DAT here is negative. And then hereditary spherocytosis, again, DAT is negative, but you have that positive EMA binding to red blood cells. Awesome. You covered it all. So as always, guys, thank you so much for listening. Good luck with your board studying. It's getting closer and closer. And please feel free to reach out to us with corrections or comments on our Instagram or our Twitter, 2OnkDocs. And if you're enjoying these episodes, please feel free to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Have a great week. <laughs>